From In Order To by Kenneth Patchen They told me to blow it all to hell and gone, and I blew it all to hell and gone, oh didn't I? Now, they said, put it back together again, put it all back the way it was when you started. Well, it was my turn to tell them something. Shucks, I didn't want any job that bad. Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 22, The Bridge, Part 1. When John Bath's consciousness fully ported into his simulacrum body, the doctor shook his head quickly. He looked up to see Major McGillicuddy standing a few feet away. Cuddy cinched his coveralls, then checked and rechecked his slug thrower. I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, John told Cuddy. It's like you're at rest one moment, then you're hallucinating. Then you're... well, you're in a place like this. Bath glanced around the rot and rust-covered alcove where he and Cuddy hid their robot bodies days earlier. Yeah, I know. Cuddy spoke quietly, without emotion. Makes me want to puke. You okay? Bath asked Cuddy. Yeah. The Major turned for the metal door nearby. Let's get the hell out of here. John followed Cuddy out of the storage shelter. The Major walked a few feet ahead into the mouth of the Hugh L. Carey tunnel. Light from outside filtered in. Bath watched as shadows crept across the cracked tile floors, ending along the curved walls into dark, monstrous forms. They stepped out into the light, where the massive entrance to the undersea tunnel met the Brooklyn Battery and Lower Manhattan. Stone and concrete littered the area. Broken I-beams and pilings blocked their path. Damn it. Cuddy turned his gaze uphill, trying to determine if he and Bath could safely climb over the obstructing waste and debris. John glanced to his left, where he spied ornate blue and pink colored graffiti that declared Morlock's Rule. On the opposite wall, spotty black paint faced the other side, as if answering this statement with the misspelled scrawl, Mutants Must Die. Cuddy marched uphill purposefully. He crawled over a layer of rubble and wrought iron, seeking higher ground from which to determine the easiest path. What do you see? Bath called out from behind Cuddy. Hang on a minute, 
Cuddy faced the opposite direction, scanning the area to see how they could overcome the roadblock. He peered over his shoulder at the massive port of entry, chiseled letters in the monument, and weathered statues standing like guardian angels. For a moment, Cuddy felt calm. Maybe he overestimated the impasse. Then, from the corner of his eye, Cuddy spotted a row of figures perched on an overpass on the other side of the mountain of wreckage. Two of the figures moved. Down! Cuddy shouted at Bath. Cover! John watched Cuddy leap from where he stood. His body was a black silhouette on a blank canvas. A wisp of smoke flew up as Cuddy descended. An aluminum canister crashed into a pylon near Cuddy, followed by a quick blast, throwing him sideways. John gripped a cinder block and hunkered down. A burst of razors and pellets escaped the explosion, ripping into his coveralls. Unhindered by the concerns he would have in his human form, Cuddy recovered quickly, leaping into action. John, you okay? Bath crawled through a covered alcove. I'm fine. Where are they? On the overpass. Stay put. I'm going for a better look. The words were barely out of Cuddy's mouth before another incendiary device ripped through a wall of rock and wire between Cuddy and Bath. Metal pelted the area. Rock crumbled. Cuddy moved swiftly, faster than he could in his own body, leaping from cracked mounds of cinder block onto mangled metal beams. John watched as his partner vaulted over him, moving diagonally until he was out of sight several meters away. Cuddy? Bath heard no reply. Another bomb landed in a pile of rubbish between John and the entrance to the tunnel. Fuel ignited, flaring intensely, then dissipating. John kicked the ground below him, pushing himself back, further under cover. He felt like such a coward. What the hell else was he going to do? Whether human or robot, Cuddy was much more suited for this kind of conflict. Cuddy swept over the steep angles of obstacles and rubbish, getting footholds where he could and leaping forward. He knew he was getting closer when he heard guttural sounds, maybe some kind of language coming from where his enemies squatted. A metal capsule erupted behind Cuddy. Its contents scattered. Sharp metal and rough-edged coins peppered his back, tearing through his clothes, digging into his simulacrum's pseudo-skin. He lurched forward, remembering the knife-wielding rockheads on Liberty Island and the torch-bearing mutants who attacked him, General Castro, and Bath on the ferry. Those assailants had guns, rifles they shot from a distance. Why didn't these attackers have the same weapons? Were they not connected to the same band of destructive forces? While Cuddy climbed and sank through the demolished field, Bath huddled low, crawling under misshapen beams, over cracked tar pavement. He kept his back to the overpass while avoiding areas where the bombs hit. From a covered spot, Cuddy clutched the slug thrower to his chest. He watched the quartet on the overpass divide to cover more area. They were clearly mutants. At least one had a thick, pointed tail protruding from his back. Another was covered in a yolk and slate-colored armor. An amphibian kind of shell. These two gathered at the center of the footbridge, a container of supplies between them. The mutant with the tail prepared the incendiary devices and distributed them to the others, who scrambled to the ends of the bridge. Cuddy dropped into a crack between two walls of concrete. Stealthily, he crept forward until he was directly under the bridge. 
There, he heard one of the mutants grunt something about cans. The mutant hurled another explosive. The device detonated behind Cuddy. When the mutant rushed to the center of the bridge to resupply himself, Cuddy pushed his fist through the cracked wall of concrete overhead. He kicked off a pylon, launching his simulacrum upwards. He grasped a flat, metal rail under the bridge. Safely shielded by the wreckage, John hugged his satchel of books and canned goods close to him. He watched Cuddy dangle from the bridge, moving from slat to slat until he was under two of the mutants at the center. Come on, Major. Bath quietly rooted for his partner. Before the mutants could replenish themselves with bombs, Cuddy kicked his legs, swinging upwards in a feat of acrobatics improbable for any regular human. The Major crashed into the side of the railing across from the mutants, clearly surprising them. Get! The shell-skinned, marble-mouthed leader uttered. Gob and claim em. Cans! Cans! The nearest mutant staggered forward, stepped back, and whipped his rock-hard tail at Cuddy. The blow caught the Major square in the jaw, with enough force to send him into the railing. Blood up on him, the leader ordered, watching for his bang-a-bang. As Cuddy got into a defensive fighting stance, the mutant swiveled around again, this time catching the Major under his armpit. The stroke wasn't as powerful as the first, but still knocked Cuddy down and out of sight for Dr. Bath, who watched at a distance. No, the mutant sneered, spit flecking his scaly mouth. Get up and lose. Okay, Cuddy got to his feet. He saw the fourth mutant struggling towards the center of the bridge. Cuddy swerved, gripped the slug thrower between him and his assailant. Have it your way. He pulled the trigger, blasting the tailed mutant. A barrel full of improvised powder, slugs, and balls caught the mutant in the neck and upper torso. A red mist colored the air. Before the mutant behind Cuddy could leap at him, the Major rolled sideways, cycled up the next slug, and pulled the trigger. The mutant lumbered, collapsing backwards. Price pay now, Jiminy, cried the leader, whose massive arms wrapped around Cuddy. The Major struggled, uselessly trying to free himself. He felt something deep inside his simulacrum crack. He hoped it wasn't permanent or beyond repair. Like it, the mutant roared. Cuddy wenched a slug thrower between them, pointing it down at his instep. He hoped if he didn't hit the mutant, the eruption of shot might cause him to relinquish his grip. Cuddy discharged the weapon. Power and balls surged, ripping into the bridge. Gravel flew up into the cloud between them. Blinded, the mutant aggressor's grip loosened enough for Cuddy to break free. The shell-skinned mutant gasped, grabbing his face. Watch out! He shouted in a throaty blend of agony and anger. He's got him dragon's breath! Cuddy fell on his back, balancing the shotgun between him and the other man. Don't, Cuddy insisted. He pumped the shotgun furiously, swung the sawn-off barrel between him and the leader. As if compelled, the armored mutant reached blindly, careening forward into the barrel of Cuddy's weapon. He was going to claw or crush the Major, who, in his position, was helpless. Cuddy discharged a shotgun, firing slugs through the mutant's thick skin and out his plated back. The blood-soaked mutant's eyes bulged. He stumbled back, hobbling over to the cartons of incendiary devices. 
Without hesitation, Cuddy pulled the trigger again. Shell shattered and oozed. The mutant staggered sideways, grasping for something, anything. Unable to clutch the railing of the bridge for support, the mutant coughed uncontrollably and spun over the side of the bridge. Still on his back, Cuddy glanced up to see the fourth and final mutant approaching. He was just a boy brandishing a knife. Cuddy followed his gaze over to the scattered supply of bombs and back to him. Their eyes locked for a brief moment that felt like an eternity. Cuddy felt no pain, but knew his simulacrum was damaged. For some reason, General Castro's words echoed in his mind. Cuddy had asked the general what they should do if they encountered resistance. Avoid it, Castro ordered. Cuddy looked at the surviving mutant. The creature's hairless, sweat-soaked face went blank, then terrified. Go, Cuddy said, hoping the mutant understood him. You hear me? Get the hell out of here. Go on. The knife in the boy's hand dropped between them on the paved bridge. He turned slowly, then tore away, disappearing on the other side of the bridge. Laying there, Cuddy surveyed the scene. The mutant behind the major was dead. The one with the tail lay nearby, clutching his neck with one hand, his chest with the other. His tail writhed slowly. If Cuddy had ammunition to spare, he would have put the pathetic thing out of its misery. But he didn't have that luxury. The major's gaze shifted from the mutant to his own legs. His coveralls were shredded around his ankles. Bits of pigmented pseudoskin were scattered nearby. A thin spot of lime-colored liquid pooled under Cuddy's foot. Bath, get up here. General Benjamin Castro and Lieutenant John Running Bear leaned against the hood of the military vehicle, parked in an enclave of a tent city on the south side of the Brooklyn Bridge. Running Bear was an impressive and loyal man, and the likes of his Native American forebears shared his recollection of the fate that befell the surface world in Castro's absence. After the attacks on the energy plants in upstate New York and across the border in Canada, Running Bear explained, first responders, the military, everyone was mobilized, preparing for whatever was going to happen next, the next wave, the next attack. Castro nodded. Esther mentioned a group called Nightshade took responsibility for the UN. Yes. Running Bear sniffed the air, seeming to relax a little. I wasn't even born then, but that was my understanding. The UN, the attack on the ignition lab in California, the facility in Switzerland. CERN? Castro asked. Running Bear shrugged. Like I said, before my time. But those events put things in motion. The economy tanked. People lost hope, turned against each other, went into hiding. Esther said something about the president going into hiding, Castro said. Yes, Running Bear replied. A succession of leaders rose up to command the country. The vice president, the speaker of the house, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense. They all wanted control. People didn't know who was in command, who to rally behind. Politicians, Castro grinned with irony. Hmm. Running Bear groaned. Political factions formed at the national and state levels. Some with good intentions. Others just causing trouble. Like what? 
Communications and supply chains were damaged, Running Bear explained. For every piece of infrastructure that was repaired, designed to help people, some anarchist, some terrorist, was there, trying to tear it down. Castro thought about his first meeting with Professor John Bath. Standing in the Phoenix Project's cold laboratory, Project Administrator Daniel Devenu described the linguist as a self-styled anarchist with ties to the dissidents in the project. In the time he trained with and led Bath, Castro had come to believe this wasn't true. Bath was arrogant, but smart. He had a bit of a worm in him that wriggled, wanting to turn against his masters. But his motives were true, his intentions honorable. There were mass migrations throughout the country, Lieutenant Running Bear continued. Some were fleeing the impacts of radiation, others the mobs and violence, trying to find somewhere to belong. With the national leadership and states on opposing sides, it was near impossible to get anything done, let alone mobilize aid or carry out elections. Castro looked at the side of the younger man's face. But still, he said, when you were old enough, you decided to join the military. Running Bear turned, facing Castro. Stupid, huh? Castro shrugged. No, I would expect more people would be inclined to defend... To Benjamin didn't finish. Something about the way Running Bear pursed his lips, turned away, suggested he found the general's words empty or unearned. Anyway, Running Bear explained, that was the world I was born into. Where are you from? Kasher asked. Indiana. I come from a family with a proud military tradition. I was in the last U.S. Army class before the states took complete control of the guardsmen. The National Guard? Castro asked. Running Bear nodded. Instead of sticking around Alabama where I trained, or going back to Indiana, I was dispatched to an underground facility in upstate New York. Underground? Built into the mountain, Running Bear replied. That's why I was a little taken aback when you mentioned this, uh, Phoenix... The Phoenix Project, Castro interrupted. Yeah. Well, anyway... Everyone thought there were going to be more attacks on New York, Washington, D.C. Hard targets, Castro said. Yes, they were most afraid of biological attacks on the centers of government. I was sent to the Lazarus facility under high peaks. I've never heard of it, Castro said. I'm not surprised, Running Bear replied. It was deep in the mountains, a secure installation to protect the family members of the politicians, military commanders. Everyone working to... Running Bear seemed to search for the right word, then grinned playfully. To reboot the country. What did you do there? Castro sensed Running Bear's reluctance, but could tell discussing his past was therapeutic for the lieutenant. <laughs> I played a lot of pool, a lot of foosball. And what about your friend there? Castro referred to the lieutenant's odd Japanese traveling companion. Benjamin cocked his head towards the tent city. Iku, you met him there? Running Bear shook his head. Nah, I met Iku a few months ago, when I came down near Syracuse. Castro gestured for the lieutenant to continue his story. I was there to protect those people, make sure no one got in and no one got out. But mostly... Running Bear hesitated, exhaling through his nostrils. I settled disputes 
kept the peace. Other than that, I watched people get sick, go crazy, or die. It wasn't what you would call an ideal deployment. Castro shook his head. He couldn't help but think about Cuddy's experiences in the Phoenix Law Division. He wondered if Phoenix and Lazarus were constructed with similar goals. What did they have in common? And how were they different? What happened? How did you leave? When? I was there about ten years. Things were awkward, but I got used to it. Running Bear swallowed hard, gazing into the distance beyond the tent city. Then, strange things started happening. Slowly at first, then suddenly. Then it was... Running Bear knelt near the vehicle's front bumper. He ran his hands through a patch of wet earth. What things? Castro watched the soldier carefully, prying a little. Lieutenant Running Bear looked up at the general for a long moment. He spoke softly, coolly weighing his words as if he didn't expect the general to believe him. There were always those who weren't best suited or conditioned for confinement. That was understood. But crime, theft, murder, that was unexpected. Murder? Castro felt the oculus in his simulacrum head widen. Running Bear nodded slowly. First, it was people committing self-harm. A rash of suicides among the middle-aged male population. Everyone got anxious. Then there was a murder and an investigation. No reason, no motive. One of the lead administrators just went nuts and killed one of the seniors. A little later, well, the tension was constant. It was hard to eat, hard to sleep under those conditions. The people turned on their protectors, leadership, security, supply, the physicians. I did the best I could to, you know, do my job. Then, a couple of years ago, Running Bear had an unintentional air of surprise in his voice. He glanced at the general, as if weighing which of them told the more provocative, more unnatural story that brought them to that place, that moment. There were a handful of people who broke out in sores. The dogs thought it could be an allergic reaction to rations or supplies or, or maybe something else. They couldn't find the right treatment. They couldn't get it right. This one woman, Madeline, she grew these pustules the size of a fist down her back. Another man, Don, his face was overtaken by a tumor. Mutations. Castro hung his head, crossed his arms in front of him. Do you think they were caused by something they were exposed to in the facility? I don't know. The doctors tried to treat them to the best of their ability, but it's obvious. I mean, well, it's obvious now. This was something no one had ever seen. Castro thought back to his communication with the so-called magistrate on Governor's Island. The madman insisted chemicals and toxins were responsible for the mutations and claimed that psychotropic drugs immunized people from these effects. What happened to them? Castro asked. To the people who were, he winced, infected. John Running Bear stood. He leaned away from the vehicle and walked a few paces, turning his back to the simulacrum of Benjamin Castro. Madeline tried to escape the silo. 
She attacked the others in the installation. She was restrained, put in a holding cell. After a few days, tentacles grew out of her back and overtook her cell. She killed four guards and several of her peers. My commanding officer, Captain Bradbury, had to... Running Bear didn't finish. I understand. Kasher resisted reaching out to reassure the other man. It was selfish to think a machine could offer hope to a man who experienced such things. What about the man with the tumor? Uh, Don? Lieutenant Running Bear turned slowly, facing Castro. He put a fist in front of his mouth, illustrating the size of the tumor. They tried to operate, to remove the tumor. I was told Don Ballard leapt from the surgical table, and he... Running Bear's glassy dark eyes widened, as if seeing the scene before him. He ate our chief physician and killed the surgical team. Castro stood in front of the military vehicle, a few feet from the lieutenant. Ate him? What do you mean he ate him? Running Bear breathed quickly. He had mutated into something else. His face, his neck, it had all become one large mouth with appendages that just... They pulled the doctor in, devoured him, bit by bit. My God. General Castro's mechanical mouth opened wide enough for Running Bear to see the simulacrum had no tongue. Yeah, Running Bear shrugged. We had to put him down. Our non-lethal weapons didn't work. We used assault rifles. He was still struggling when we put him in the incinerator. A long moment passed between them. Castro glanced at the tent city, then at the bridge and Manhattan in the distance. What caused this? How many more were there like the Rockheads and Morlocks, like Piker, La Cina Bell, who suffered the throes of mutation and evolved into something so awful? Running Bear continued. After Madeline, Don was the last of the administrators of the Lazarus facility. When he was terminated, I think everyone just kind of panicked. What did you do? Kasher asked. About a year and a half ago, we had a meeting to decide the best course of action. Everything was on the table. As Lieutenant Running Bear spoke, Castro watched as a soldier's traveling partner, the stoic, seemingly ambivalent Iku Kaminari, approached. Kaminari wore a soiled black kimono. The simple belt at his waist held the polished katana that was never far from the Japanese man's hand. Castro was unafraid of Kaminari, but there was something about this man, approximately the general's age, that intimidated him. Benjamin Castro harbored the thought that, not unlike some survivors he encountered on Governor's Island, or that the lieutenant described, Kaminari might be demented. In the end, Running Bear continued, we made the decision that everyone who wasn't confined to the infirmary would leave. How many? Castro asked, while keeping an eye on Iku. The lieutenant looked up, as if counting, searching for the right number. Perhaps he was seeing the faces of those he knew. A little over 450. They could have been infected, Castro implored most seriously. Of course, Running Bear agreed, and looked at himself, as if to silently ask the question if he was infected. And if he wasn't, then why not? But what choice did we have? It was a question of sacrificing in the mountains or survival here, above ground. Castro nodded. 
Every man for himself, then. Something like that, the lieutenant shot back. And you, Kasharash Running Bear, while watching Iku move items around in the rear of the military vehicle. I did my duty, General, John Running Bear insisted, inching closer to Castro, if that's what you're implying. I elected to stay back, to stay behind, to protect the seniors and the infirm. Castro turned his attention from Iku Kaminari. Benjamin and Running Bear locked eyes for a protracted moment in which, despite the act he knew he was not, Castro felt truly human. I commend you, Lieutenant, Castro finally said. Lieutenant Running Bear dismissed the compliment. That's unnecessary and gratuitous. I felt like a coward waiting for those people to give up or die or to mutate into something. Running Bear ran his hands through coarse jet hair. Unkempt strands slicked back by rain and sweat fell across his forehead. Ever since I left there, Running Bear's words came slower as he watched a group of men and women nearby frying something in an oil drum full of grease. He smiled for a brief moment. I guess I've been trying to find some meaning in all of... Well, he waved his hand. All of this. Benjamin wondered if in the Lazarus facility, the lieutenant found himself afraid, alone, except for the old and ill. Did he watch those people expire, or did he force their inevitable deaths? No. General Castro shrugged off this feeling, and followed Lieutenant John Running Bear's gaze to the people in makeshift homes of the tent city. He knew neither Running Bear, nor Iku Kaminari belonged in a settlement like this. Both men were rootless, but venerable. Bound together by wanderlust and guilt that prevented them from staying in one place too long. They, like Benjamin, were thrust into an unforgiving world they were compelled to salvage at whatever cost. It was now evident why Esther, the matriarch of the Brooklyn tent city, brought them together. General Castro aimed a thumb at Iku Kaminari and the rear of the vehicle. Okay, then. What about him? Lieutenant Running Bear clapped Castro on the shoulder. That's another story. He walked past him. Come on, General. Let's get you some armor and a more suitable sidearm than that machete you've been hiding. Colonel Dana Marsh leaned into her workstation in the Phoenix Project Law Enforcement's headquarters. It was midday. She felt unusually out of sorts. Stiff. The division was quiet, probably due to the increased number of visible and covert patrols. Marsh read through the weekly summary report, then the previous day's detailed description of activities. Sifting through citizen reports of ordinance violations, complaints about property or other disputes, was rarely exciting, but today, Marsh found it especially difficult to focus, to give attention to the petty concerns of civilians reporting each other for minor violations. The colonel turned to the incident and arrest reports, descriptions of investigations that Major McGillicuddy usually called for her. Cuddy briefed the colonel on those cases that required her attention. He handled the rest himself. Since the major's absence the last few weeks, Marsh received the reports personally, and dictated and dispensed orders to her commanders and patrols throughout the division. 
Marsh plotted through the raw material a third, fourth time, each time finding some detail she missed before. Where was Cuddy when she needed him to make sense of all of this? Relations between citizens, law enforcement, the suspected dissidents, and the Phoenix Council had never been more tense. Sure, the Council stepped up its efforts to provide more frequent information to the citizens, but this gesture didn't improve the value or the veracity of those reports. And there was little information shared about the diminishing efficiency of ventilation, air conditioning, potable water, and the variety of available food sources. Colonel Marsh leaned her face against her fist. The investigative report at the corner of her paper and digital tablet-covered desk caught her attention. Over the past few days, she kept pushing Cuddy's internal complaint about Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed to the edge of the desk. She didn't want to read it, respond to it, or make it public. Besides, she liked Lieutenant Reed. He was Canadian like she was, and aside from sharing a love of hockey matches never seen, and those that would never again be played, Reed was brutal, but he got things done. Oh, Cuddy. Marsh found herself resenting her protege. Why are you making things more complicated? The colonel picked up the electronic tablet. She let out a long, exhausted sigh. She scanned the report that had the hallmarks of all of Cuddy's work. Major Leonard McGillicuddy may have been a man of action, but when it came to internal investigations, he was thorough, including every necessary detail and citation. The frosted glass doors to Colonel Marsh's office slid open. A man she recognized from the Division Intel and Operations section entered. He was under her command, but wasn't an officer. Marsh rarely saw the employee, and for some reason could never remember his name, no matter how often they met in person or in passing. Colonel Marsh? The dark-haired man halted just inside the doorway. Yes? Marsh forced a smile. Am I disturbing you? He held a touch-sensitive computer. Marsh looked down at Cuddy's report, cursed silently. No. She looked up at the man, grateful for the diversion. Please come in, Mr. Uh... Princip. The intel specialist walked to the colonel's desk assuredly. Gabriel, please. Colonel Marsh snapped her fingers. I'm sorry, I knew that. What can I do for you, Gabriel? The man flashed a handsome, almost leering smile full of polished white teeth. Just routine warrants and surveillance docs that need your approval, ma'am. Gabriel handed the electronic device to her. Marsh scanned the documents, glancing over data gleaned by the hundreds of cameras and micro-listening devices littered throughout the Phoenix Project. She hovered over a series of outputs from the droids that aided with patrols. It's all routine, Gabriel stressed. Marsh advanced the display a few pages to see the warrants requiring her permission. You like your work, Princip? Marsh looked up from the computer. It keeps me busy, Gabriel replied, piercing blue eyes holding Marsh's for a long moment. I'm sure. The colonel keyed her approval codes into the handheld device. Gabriel cleared his throat audibly. <clears throat> There's also a request for access to the senior's living facility, Princip pointed. Colonel read the orange print on the blacked-out LED background. Something about the screen's resolution exacerbated the headache forming at her right temple. Access to the senior center? 
What for? Gabriel shrugged. It's not my place to ask, Colonel. I'm sure it's a routine inquiry. If you'd like, I can... No, no, that, that's fine. Marsh punched in her code and fingerprints of her four digits to verify authorization. Thank you, Princip. Colonel Marsh handed the computer back to the other man. Gabriel, he reminded her, taking the device. Marsh nodded dismissively, convinced she would remember his name next time she saw him. Thank you, Gabriel. Colonel Marsh watched Princip leave, then sank back into her chair. The pain in her temples had come on suddenly, spreading across her brow and to her jaw, down her neck. She looked at Cuddy's complaint report one more time. Damn it, Cuddy. Marsh opened the bottom desk drawer. She slid back the hidden panel, her hands reaching for a particular pill container, something stronger than the prescription-grade painkillers she was allotted. Firepit Creative Group Production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Firepit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2020 by Firepit Creative Group.